You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Show. I've been wanting to do this one for a while. I am excited to have him here. He is one of the bright stars of Young Voices. You're going to love him. Uh, and I'm anxious to get to know this audience. Daniel DiMartino, my friend, it's been a while coming. I'm thrilled to talk to you on the show. Welcome. Likewise, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the bio because your story is so great. Um, tell folks where you're from, uh, your home country. You're very proud to be here, but that's really at the core of where we're going to go with what you're getting involved in. And I think it's so amazing, but just give people kind of the sketch background on your biography, my friend. Yeah, well, I'm from Venezuela. I came to the United States six years ago um, to study in Indianapolis at IUPUI. Um, and I have a degree in economics. I'm doing a PhD in economics now. And ever since I got to the US, not only, of course, I study and, and um, do my research and, and do what I, what I love, but at the same time, I decided to, to help on, on a volunteer capacity just because I'm very passionate about it. Uh, Americans learn about the disaster of socialism since I saw so many Americans fall on the trap of socialist politicians. And that's why we began this project that we're going to talk about today called the Dissident Project, where we're going to send survivors of socialist regimes from all over the world who live in the United States now to high schools to tell their stories and, and explain students that socialism is not the answer to our problems, but rather it is the cause of our problems. Yeah. Now let's do some nomenclature. Let's make sure everybody's on the same page here. Because socialism is one of those things that, you know, Twitter gets a hold of it and turns something into a buzzword and then this, that and the other and your, your uncle's socialism and that car over there socialism and everything. I don't like socialism. Okay. That's not what you're talking about. Use your home country as an example, because folks that maybe don't know the, the backstory, Venezuela is a country that's rich in resources, has a wonderful people, was a vibrant economy. Then you had Hugo Chavez. Now you have Manduro. This is not the buzzword socialism Facebook meme kind of thing you're talking about. This has very real world implications for the country you come from, doesn't it? Yes. Venezuela used to be the fourth richest country in the world in the 1950s. And even at the end of the 20th century in 1999, it was the richest country in Latin America uh, by far. Uh, why? Because Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world and it was a relatively free economy. And that allowed, of course, people to flourish and make a lot of money. 
that changed when Chavez got elected in 1998. He took office in 1999, uh, that, which was the year I was born as well. And he totally revamped the economy. He took over businesses. He put price controls on the remaining private businesses. He controlled uh, international trade imports and exports. He started to print so much money to pay for all these new welfare programs to give housing for free, food for free, healthcare, education, absolutely everything. And he bankrupted our nation, led to hyperinflation and submerged 95% of the country into poverty except those who are very well connected with the regime. And 6 million of us out of 30 million have fled the country in, in a matter of about seven years. So it's been a total disaster. And, and the reason why I left, the reason why millions of others have left. So that is what socialism is, right? Total government control over the economy. And, and that's what we cannot allow. And there's people who, who unfortunately wanna do that here. It's not about raising a little tax by 1% or, or, you know, uh, reducing or increasing this little welfare program. It's about, uh, you know, radical change that would bankrupt America. And we cannot allow that to happen. What is it about socialism that it goes so hand in hand with a dictatorship? And it's not that capitalism can't be abused. We know it can be, or a parliamentary system can't be abused. But when you look at the 20th and 21st centuries, like like you just said with Venezuela, that's one generation, you know, 1998, you're talking 25 years. That's a startling change in a country. What is it about socialism that it just goes so hand in hand with tyranny like a Maduro, like a Hugo Chavez, like we've seen in other parts of the world? Well, that, you know, they get elected democratically at first. And, and as soon as things go south economically and, and socially, uh, and the people want to take them out of office, they guarantee their power in office. Because what, what does socialism allow to do, right? It gives total control to the government, which is a lot of corruption opportunities, right? When the government took over businesses, who started to manage state enterprises? Their friend, the general at this division of the military, or their, their cousin, and, and, you know, and that's how it works, and then they, they pocket the money. Um, and, and that creates a very group, a very powerful group of special interests with, whose interest is to remain in power to keep profiting from the population. Um, and that's what socialism is about. And that's why we can't take them out because they started rigging the elections after they got into power. And, and that's why the, the last free election with a socialist is the first election. Um, and, and we cannot allow that to happen in America. Uh, because if, if socialism ever comes to America, it will come democratically, right? It's not going to happen like Cuba. It's not going to happen like the Soviet Union, like North Korea, where there's this military guy who takes over after a war or a revolution. Uh, that's not going to happen here. If it happens, it's, it's going to happen like in Venezuela. Venezuela was a middle-income country. Venezuela ha had re natural resources. Venezuela was free and prosperous and, you know, not perfect, with unsafety too, with the corruption, with poverty, just like any other country. But it was a country where people didn't starve to death or millions left their homes. Now that's what Venezuela is. Put your economic hat on for just a second. Talking to Daniel DiMartino uh, today on Herd Tell. Um, what you're really describing is we've heard it a lot in the American parlance of too big to fail. What happens is when the government controls everything, the government is what's too big to fail. And that's where all that corruption comes on. As an economist, though, talk about what that does. You've already talked about the brain drain. You know, six million people have left Venezuela. That's a massive brain drain because those are the people that have the means to leave. Economically, that kind of a brain drain, when the uh, innovation of a country is stifled, when the government is controlling everything and it's too big to fail and there's that much corruption, 
just on an economic level, everything else starts to break down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, I think the best example is that my family used to make three to $5,000 a month in the early 2000s uh, when Chavez started uh, his government. And by 2016, we were making $100 a month. Um, so, so that's the decline. And that was the decline of the economy too. Today, the Venezuelan economy is 90% smaller than it was seven years ago. 90%. That's what happened to all the Venezuelan population. What kind of, of, while we're still on Venezuela, before we get to the distant project, Daniel Martino joining us, what is there to be done? Because it sure seems like with these dictators, it's almost like you're just waiting for them to die and hope the next guy ain't as bad. Is there anything that can actually be done to Venezuela now? Because it seems like Mandura is pretty entrenched. There was some glimmer of hope a couple of years ago. That seems to have faded. Are they just stuck with this? Is there any hope at all? Well, I think that if you ask me to predict something, what I would predict is that he's going to stay in power for a very, very long time. Now, if you want to ask me if that has to be the fate, the future, it doesn't have to be, but it will require external intervention. It's not going to happen from within Venezuela. I'm just going to tell you that. And if people are just going to wait for it to happen, then they're going to wait for the rest of their lives um, and for the lives of their children and their grandchildren, just like with Cuba. Um, and, and it's because the, the, the incentive structure is, is just very powerful, right? The population doesn't have guns. Anyone who could overthrow the regime is already a member of the regime. And they're not gonna want Venezuela to become a democracy because they know that if Venezuela becomes a democracy, even if we were to guarantee them protection and, and even if we would go through with the protection and forgive all their crimes, which is not gonna happen because the population is gonna seek vengeance later. Um, but even if that happened, why would these people do that when they can stay in power and keep profiting? and keep making millions and millions of dollars. So that's, that's why I don't think anything's gonna happen. Um, but, but if it did, it would have to be from, from outside the country. All right, Daniel DiMartino join us. Okay, we always wanna have a broad perspective on our program. It's something our audience works really hard on. Give me that perspective. You come to this country, you come from Venezuela, you come to America, what did you expect? And what did you actually find that maybe surprised you a little bit? Just put people in your mindset as you first came to America to study how different it was and what really struck you about it when you got here. Well, look, the, the biggest difference that is very quickly noticed is uh, security and safety. Uh, Venezuela is and was a very dangerous country. Uh, it, you know, Caracas has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Kidnapping is very common. Robbery is the order of the day. Um, and, and so being able to walk in the street by myself um, in Indianapolis, where I lived, was a very big change in my quality of life for the better. Um, you know, I, I didn't have normal teenage years, right? I couldn't go to parties at any time. You know, we started hosting parties in the day, staying at friends' homes um, be, because things were very different. Um, so that, that was a big change. You know, the weather was a big change, uh, you know, seeing snow and all that. You're not saying Indianapolis is a little different weather-wise than South America. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, I did my first annual in the snow. It wasn't the first time I saw snow. I saw snow in some mountains in Venezuela when I was a baby. But certainly the first time I remember. Um, and and it, was very, it was very cool. I enjoyed it very much. But I also saw, uh, you know, a lot of things that I didn't see in Venezuela. Uh, some of them were that the population in Venezuela by that time had already become very anti-regime, very anti-socialist, 
very much that they wanted more economic freedom. And here I saw the opposite. I saw a lot of young people who wanted the government to, to control everything, who didn't know anything about what was going on in the rest of the world, like Venezuela and other places, which I did because, you know, I lived in Venezuela and because I, I had an interest in politics because I, I, I was living in a political experiment. Um, but then I, I, you know, culture is different. Um, I really enjoyed being in America. It's a totally different experience in Venezuela. There was a lot of, um, because of the whole security situation, you couldn't even tell your friends what your parents did for a living because you were afraid that some kidnapper would end up knowing. Um, so, so you just felt more at ease in the United States. Um, I, I love it, Andrew. I, you know, this is a very special country. The people are very special. I think that people exaggerate uh, our political differences very much, and they do it because they don't know what real political differences are, which is what happened in Venezuela, in countries where there has even been genocide, where people killed each other for politics. That that's not. I don't think that's going to happen here, and I hope it doesn't get that bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talk about real quick too. Um, culturally, when you come over here. We talk about it in the abstract that, you know, America is a big, pluralistic, inclusive society. It's very, very diverse. We say that as a buzzword, but I always, when I talk to people who come here from a foreign country, I remember my German exchange buddies, when they came over here, they were just like, wow, there's so many different people here. Talk about the difference in that, especially, you know, you grew up middle of the country. You're now, you know, kind of around D.C. more. You've been around the country doing media stuff now. The culture of America, that diversity, that plurality. Talk about how unique that really is when you come here from another country. Well, look, I never felt discriminated in Venezuela, which I know many, in, sorry, in, in the United States, I never felt discriminated in this country because um, while I saw some Venezuelan friends who immigrated to other parts of Latin America and they faced like explicit discrimination in the street from other people and based on their accent, which was the only thing that made people know whether you were Venezuelan. Um, because there's no single Venezuelan look um, or ethnicity. So, so that, that was very shocking to, to see that happening there, not, not in the United States, right? Which has a different language, which is not as culturally close to Venezuela as the rest of Latin America. And so I, I thought that in the United States, I didn't have any of those problems. Um, you know, I had friends from everywhere, from Indi you know, Indian people, uh, you know, uh, regular American natives from Indiana, uh, from different religions, Jews, Christians, uh, you know, atheists, and and that 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 was very cool. You know, I was able to learn from from very many different people. Um, I I will say though that the the whole um, racial situation in this country and um, controversies, you know, strife or, or however you want to call it. It's something that was new to me because it's not something that, that I experienced in Venezuela. Um, you know, seeing sometimes people in the college cafeteria sit down only with like other black people or with other white people, that was very strange um, because that was not what happened in, in Caracas at least. Um, you know, people didn't really care at all and it was not even part of the conversation, uh, ethnicity. Um, which here it is. And I think that that's the only negative thing that I, that I thought culturally America had, like we really need to get over the whole uh, ethnicity of, of, popula of the population issue. 
Yeah, Daniel DiMartino. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, he's got a great new thing with Young Voices, the Dissident Project. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about how we're going to talk about socialism going forward. Great guest. Thrilled to have him. Daniel DiMartino joining us on Hertel. Right back with him right after the break. Welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing with our friend Daniel DiMartino. He is with Young Voices. He has a great thing. Let's just get into it because I'm so excited about it called the Dissident Project. Now we know what dissident is. Let's do nomenclature again so we don't lose folks. That's a nice big fat word. Dissident. uh, People are going to start thinking Red Dawn and Wolverines and such. That's not what we're talking about here. Dissident Project, my friend. What do you got in mind with it and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, the Dissident Project is uh, this uh, venture of Young Voices that I had the idea of. And uh, we got together a group of eight people, including myself, from socialist countries in America, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and Hong Kong, which was recently taken over by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, And we're going to travel to high schools all over the United States to tell our stories and connect it to what's happening here in America and why people need to choose freedom and not be government to solve their problems. Uh, Taking us a lesson what happened in our in our countries of origin. Why is that important? Because recently Florida passed a law that requires uh, public high schools to teach about communism, totalitarian systems, and uh, even more recently, it requires 45 minutes of instruction, including firsthand experience from people who live in those places to the students once a year. That means that there are over 2,000 high schools in the state of Florida who will need to, to teach about this, and what a better resource than the district project to bring speakers to the school, which we have, thanks to a group of donors to Young Voices, uh, we're gonna travel there uh, for free. You know, they're they're gonna organize the trips, and we're volunteering uh, our time to 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 serve the schools and to talk to the students, which is something that I've loved doing already, and I've done before. But now we're gonna do it with more people. Now, how are we gonna tailor something like this? Because I imagine, let's take Florida for example. If you're in the Miami area, obviously huge Cuban expat population, very vocal, very politically active down there. Uh, that would be preaching to the choir to those folks because they know it, they've lived it, they believe it strongly. I said I would submit you'd probably deal with that one a little differently than let's talk Indianapolis again. If you go back to Indiana where people, it's more of an abject thing, you're probably going to address them differently. How do you tailor that to different audiences? Because again, big plural, diverse uh, nation, people have different experiences with government. Small town's going to have a different experience with government than a big city is. Isn't this something that you're going to be able to tailor a little bit differently wherever you take it between the eight of you? Of course, and and we're going to tailor it and especially has to be tailored towards a high school student audience, right, which is not the same as an adult audience. So notice that it's much more difficult to to gain their attention from, but it's also an audience that is much more open to learning, right, because they don't have as many preconceived political beliefs, They, they haven't made up their mind about most issues, and unlike going to colleges or, or adult events, which are a self-selected audience of people who already agrees with the speaker, usually, in high schools, the teachers send the students regardless of their political beliefs. So we actually have an impact on persuasion and, and on telling people who don't know and maybe are not that interested in the issue and catch their attention and tell them some things. So how we start always is with our story of whoever the speaker is, 
uh, of a roster of the visitor project. And from their story, they tell, you know, they connected to, to what happens in America. They warn people about the, the politicians, the, the, the people here who actually support socialist regimes and who, who actually support socialist policies for this country, such that people are not deceived of what that means, right? The, the, the people who are who claim to be socialists here and say that they just want free healthcare, that's not really what they want. They don't really want what the Nordic countries have. They they actually they want actual Venezuelan, Cuban, you know, Chinese socialist policies. And, and that's what we need to warn students about from people who actually lived it and can tell you what were the consequences in our daily lives. Like I didn't have electricity many days per week and water sometimes for several weeks straight after the government took over water and made it free because there was no money to maintain the equipment. And then when the, the things that they did have money for, which is the money they printed, created inflation, which reduced my purchasing power, which we're already seeing in the United States now. They gave so many checks for free to people, and now we have nearly 9% inflation. So these things happen. Now it's happening at a much smaller scale here. But if have no doubt, if they were to continue giving checks to people, we would easily have 20 30% inflation. Yeah, talking to Daniel DiMartino. Okay. When you're talking high school students, though, you're talking about kids that are getting ready to start being voters when they turn 18. We know 18 to 25, that is the lowest participation demographic voting wise. What do you think you can do to kind of get them? Now, that's a growing trend. They're, they're starting to vote more and more. What is it you're going to be telling them that like, hey, you're the politically active. You actually have to put your feet to this. You actually have to go and vote. How do you pitch that part to them? Because it's one thing for them to know this is book learning. It's another for them to be politically active and at least be, if nothing else, at least voters. How do you pitch that to them? Because that's something also in America, you know, that 18 to 25 year old demographic, they just don't vote that much. Everybody wants them to. We always think they're going to. They don't. How do you pitch that to them? Because that's a big part of what you're talking about, too, is if you're going to teach that generation that if they don't go vote, it doesn't really matter, does it? For sure. Well, I think that there's many ways to affect society that are not through the vote. Uh, I think a lot of it is about culture and uh, you know, avoiding them from voting for bad people. But really, look, we're a nonpartisan organization. We're not saying that they should go vote for someone or or against someone specifically, but what we're giving them is guidelines for you know who who should they be afraid of really, and, and that includes people who who support a set of policies and and, and government institution and, and destruction of our government institutions and democracy constitution, um, people who support the regimes that we fled from, and certainly encouraging them to to vote because look for example the story I give. Venezuelans elected Chavez with about a 50% participation rate in that first election, which means that Chavez won with less than 25% of voters. Less than 25% of Venezuelan voters in 1998 who are like a almost negligible share of the current adult Venezuelan population have determined our future for the rest of our lives. I wasn't even born when Chavez was elected. And that determined my whole future. And it's, going, it's determining the future of the kids born today. So that's why we tell people that it's very important to, to participate um, and avoid the disaster. It's not even about electing someone that is great. It's about avoiding America from going down, right? And preserving at least what we have today. Daniel Martino. All right, let's talk about that guardrail to keep America from going down that bad path. 
when you're talking to the students, how do you explain it? What do you think one of the two, one or two things that we should be doing is, is it accountability in government? Is it strong journalism? Is it strong freedom of speech protections? Is it strong institutions? What's a couple of the things you're telling them that we need to safeguard? Because we understand we have to have some government. We're not saying we should not have any government. What's the guardrails to have good accountable government and then not turn into something where somebody like a strong man could take over or socialism becomes a thing where it becomes an, an untenable monster that we can't control anymore. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest one is uh, protection of private property, uh, not being able, the government not being able to uh, use private property for arbitrary means. And I don't think we actually have enough guardrails for private property in the United States. Even the Supreme Court has allowed, uh, you know, expropriation for the government to give up the property of someone to someone else, uh, not even for public use, but for other private use, which I think is totally outrageous that we allow that to happen in America and can be very abused if we get someone who, who is willing to abuse that power. And we, we, we need especially, this is not as much of a constitutional or legal guardrail, we need an educated populace. And, and we need an educated populace regarding um, authoritarianism and, and the signs of who's an authoritarian leader. Um, and I think that we don't have that when you see people voting for Bernie Sanders and for many other politicians who we know have praised dictators who want to emulate those systems, who, who propose things and, and you know just want to give a bunch of things for free without saying how they're going to pay for these things. We need, some, we need a populace educated in basic economics and, and understand that Inflation, for example, inflation is something that we already saw decades ago. We know how to keep inflation low, and it's a not it's not a partisan issue. It's it's an issue of a monitor of a responsible monetary policy and, and not crazy budget deficit. And unfortunately, we are losing that grip on reality. Um, and it's not entirely the fault of the people, right? There are uh, you know economists and um, uh, very highly educated and, and important people who are pushing these things too. But we have to be smart and kids have to understand that, you know, if you're gonna spend something, it's gonna come from somewhere. And, you know, incentives matter. If you pay somebody not to work, are they gonna be more or less likely not to work? If you know, they guarantee everything for free, why would people work at all? The, it, it's it, most things are about incentives. This is I understand that that can be difficult, especially with younger people to understand. But I think it's very well possible. You know, when I was a kid, I started reading Milton Friedman. Um, I was twelve years old. Okay, I was a, a crazy kid, um, and I read Free to Choose, and that really helped me and opened my mind to 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 think about freedom. And I think that if we did that more, and that's why I'm really happy that Florida passed this law against communism. If I keep Thing sees and, and hears someone who came from a socialist country, from North Korea, from Venezuela, from Cuba. They'll remember that, and they'll remember. And they'll remember if someone ever praises those regimes, or if someone ever proposes something the same. Hey, that person who lived in that country says that's that's not okay, and they won't believe the lies of of these online forums that try to tell them that oh no, it's all U.S. imperialism that caused this issue. Don't listen to to the survivors because they will have already listened to us. Daniel DiMartino, I, I think the personal narrative is the way to go about this because the terminology starts, you know, people's eyes start rolling back in their head and you start talking economics. 
personal stories always great grab people and i think y'all getting folks and I, I know the roster i'll let you tell tell them here and pitch it but the people you have telling the personal stories of like look this isn't in a book this wrecked my family this ruined my country I think that's the way to approach this stuff. Uh, Daniel DiMartino, tell folks where they can find the Dissident Project. Uh, list a couple of the people that's involved because these are some really, really sharp people that are very impressive and where they can follow you and your social media and what's going on in the future, where they can start watching for y'all as you start to uh, meticulate out into the classrooms of America. Yeah, well, uh, you can find us in dissidentproject.org. Dissident is with double S. And uh, there we have we have eight speakers so far, including myself. We have others from Venezuela. We have my friend Franklin Camargo, who was expelled from his university in Venezuela for being against uh, communism and death threats. Even uh, who he was just studying to be a physician, and he now is in Miami. And we have my friend Felix Yarena, who came from Cuba by himself after being involved in the U.S. Religious Freedom Initiative. Uh, my friend Grace Joe, who came from North Korea and escaped with her mom, um, almost the rest of her family was killed, um, starved to death. It's it's a harrowing story and, and a very important one. And we have also several two two people from Hong Kong, uh, including Francis Hui, who uh, you know was the first asylum seeker from Hong Kong after the 2019 pro pro protests to get approved, and has lived in the United States for the last three years only. Um, so these are very sharp people. These are people that you really want to meet and that I think your students would benefit from meeting. And if you are a teacher out of high schools listening to us, watching us, uh, you can contact us at visitandproject.org and you won't have to pay anything to bring us to your high school. Uh, we just want to get the word out. Just You just have to make sure that the students go. We'll bring the speakers. We'll do everything else. Yeah, it's great to know. Like I have, I actually have family that married into my family from Hong Kong. So that's something that always hits me. People talk about that. Like, look, I grew up in a house that the house I grew up in is there because of eminent domain. They had to move because, you know, they built the lake and they had to move up on the hill. Um, wow. So the, these, these issues are universal issues. It's a matter of whether you keep your government accountable and how they handle these issues, because um, th this is stuff that affects everybody. And we use the socialism term, uh, probably too broadly, but I appreciate you bringing it into focus, and I'm really excited to see what you do with this. All right, one last quick question in the few minutes we got left, though. How's your gains coming? Because you're a gym rat, my friend. You are just <laughs> killing it. You're um, you're almost twice the man as when I first started following you because you've gotten so big now. But uh, just real quick, I just hit a new record in my bench press. Even see, though, I knew all I had to do is know, light the candle. Though, there even go. though I had done triceps before, and and you know I had done incline after the before flat bench, so I'm sure that I'm gonna do even better. Uh, I'm trying. I you know I don't live that much. You know I'm not that tall. I'm like five five, five, six. And, uh, you know, I weigh one, how, how much? 150, 148. And, you know, I just look bigger, I think, because of the, <laughs> you know, optics. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to lift more. Um, I think that my PR now for flat bench is uh, 225, which is not that much. It's just two, 245 plays each side. But I that's, think that that's 65% your body weight. That's pretty good, man. 225 it's much more than my, than yeah. my body weight right my body yeah. weight is 150 yeah you're so, doing all so right i'm gonna try to to hit 250 um soon so that's the goal 
Well, uh, we got to get you on the Twitter Supper Club hashtag with all your healthy eating because uh, we, we tend to have a little luscious food on there. You might have to give us some some good protein stuff. Daniel DiMartino, we will definitely have you back again, my friend. Uh, let people know where your Twitter is so they can follow you personally before we let you go. Thank you, Andrew. You all can follow me on at Daniel DiMartino. That is just Daniel, the regular name. And then DiMartino is D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. And uh, yeah, follow me. I, I respond if you want to message me and otherwise visit on project.org. Yep. And he's one of those great young voices contributor. My friend, we will talk again soon, especially as this rolls out so we can get some updates on what's going on out in those classrooms. Great job today. We'll see you soon, my friend. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.